Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. And we have a fantastic episode today. We've got the very cool and interesting Ross Crooks, co-founder of Column 5. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing, Ross? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and Column 5, and then we can dig into your background and history from there? Yeah, for sure. So I'm a, I'm a co-founder of Column 5. Um, we're a creative agency based in... Uh, well, formerly based in Southern California and uh, with an office in New York. And, um, but now we're kind of spread out more over the country um, with, with people everywhere. Um, and yeah, we work, we do uh, a lot of creative marketing work, content marketing work for, um, for uh, brands. And we sort of specialize in uh, a lot of the, the uh, up and coming tech companies and, um, specifically in, in a lot of those like B2B type companies. So, um, yeah, we do a lot of, uh, creative work for them, which could be, you know, uh, anything from branding and, uh, graphic design to strategy and content strategy and content marketing, uh, work. Very, very cool. So if we, if we rewind a little bit back to kind of your earlier days of your career, how did, uh, how did that play out? What were you doing earlier in life? And then how did you kind of fall into co-founding this amazing company? Yeah, for sure. It's, um, it was a bit of a, uh, organic <laughs> approach to starting a company. Um, coming out of college, I had, I had studied business, but was sort of loosely, um, I was always interested in more of the creative fields and, um, I just knew that I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to work for myself and I wanted to be able to do something that was creative and interesting to me. And then also sort of apply the business part of my mind to that as well. Um, so getting started out of school, I, um, I was excited about clothing at the time and kind of the, the fashion industry. And so I, I ended up starting, um, a men's clothing line, um, despite everyone warning me against it um, as sort of a, a tough business to be in, which I found out the hard way, but I, I don't regret it. I felt like it was, um, it was a good entry point for me. And a lot of my education came from uh, my experience in trying to, you know, both design and bring that to market. And I learned a lot, um, you know, about what makes just a, a business viable in general and, um, as well as what I was sort of uniquely good at. And through that process, um, you know, that business really never got off the ground, but I tried a few other things simultaneously, just sort of trying to kind of find something that worked. And the way well, they call it five came point, At the point at which you were trying a few of the things, because I think that that will resonate with a lot of the listeners in terms of, it wasn't the first thing that you did that struck gold. You tried multiple things. What were the, mm -hmm. how are you feeling at that time and kind of how did that all unravel? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was just a pretty experimental um, time where I was working a lot and, um, you know, kind of keeping a, a restaurant serving job on the side and doing my work by day and, um, and, you know, pretty fluid with as like the opportunities came. So, you know, one of the things that we, that I had attempted to do, I, one of my co-founders in column five was actually a partner in the clothing company as well. And, um, our third co-founder was at the time 
running a like a clothing boutique in Southern California as well. So we were kind of working closely together as as college friends. And um, as part of that, we'd started a, uh, a website that was just kind of a like a lifestyle blog um, type of thing that covered fashion and music and design and art and um, those sorts of things. And we didn't really have a good plan for it other than that we were trying to use it as a platform to be able to cross promote our companies at the time and to be able to kind of um, give us more credibility and being able to establish partnerships with other people that we felt were doing cool things by, by giving them some um, media coverage. And so we started writing this, this blog and posting about things and, and that sort of led into understanding how to drive traffic to websites, um, you know, uh, digitally figuring out what audiences wanted to see and how we could really, uh, really bring people to our site. And we never really found out how to make that a viable publication. But what happened was um, we did have success in driving a lot of traffic and creating content that was really interesting for people. Um, and that led into column five. So what a lot of um, the startups at the time when content marketing was sort of a new um, practice in 2007 or eight, um, a lot of the startups took notice of our ability to create and promote interesting content and, and started hitting us up to help out with their blogs and their, um, their marketing efforts. So that's kind of how we, um, how we began was not intending to start an agency, but um, the demand just sort of came to us as, as individual sauce get successful. And um, with, a f you know, achieving success for a few startups in their marketing efforts and seeing them get acquired and moving into their parent companies um, really was sort of a blueprint for how many other uh, startups and tech companies started finding Let's talk us. about that for a second in terms of like column five specifically, uh, back in what 2009 now how did you say okay today guys we're going to start this company and roll that out because some of the clientele that you have now is like some of the biggest companies in the world when you look at Microsoft Google Red Bull you know LinkedIn these are like big big names but if we rewind right to the beginning what first made you kind of pivot into that direction from the blogs and from the other things that you were trying and kind of throwing darts to see what would stick to mm -hmm. putting all your eggs into this direction or this basket and kind of going with, uh, with college yeah. life. Well, I mean, it started to look more economically viable for sure was, was a piece of it. Um, we weren't really, we'd never figured out how to really monetize our site um, to, to get any revenue from our traffic. Um, but, you know, people started coming to us and saying, Hey, can you promote our blog content? Um, one of the early ones was mint.com, um, that, that sort of found us and said they were, you know, they just had a blog with no pictures or anything on it and, um, asked if we could promote their content. And we said, well, no, we can't promote your content because it's not, not that great, but we can help you create good content and, um, and then promote it. And so, that was sort of, that was one example of a company, you know, and then they were acquired by Intuit a year or two later. Um, so then we started working with, you know, QuickBooks and TurboTax and a lot of those other companies within there. But that was also sort of a, uh, that was kind of a startup darling that a lot of people look to as um, trying to replicate. Their blog was very well known and 
um, we played a, a large role in that. So a lot of people were looking to replicate that strategy um, for their startups. So that's kind of how it came about. The, the other piece of it that I think drove some of our demand in the early days was um, we were uh, kind of one of the pioneers in using infographics in the marketing context. And the way that came about was, you know, we were in a lot of these online, um, like uh, social news sites like uh, Reddit and dig.com and figuring out, um, you know, how we could drive traffic through some of those sites. And what we saw was a lot of people sharing visual content, sharing old infographics and things like that, but there weren't a lot of people creating new ones. They were all, you know, scanned out of old encyclopedias or they were old maps or things like that, that people were really geeking out on. And at the time we were writing, you know, writing written content articles, blog posts. And so we sort of put two and two together and said, we can, you know, we can create original um, graphic design to visualize many of these things in a way that will be much more visually appealing. And the novelty of that format sort of fitting within a blog post um, was, uh, uh, was really interesting at the time. And so we became kind of known as the infographics people um, who are doing that for a lot of brands. So that drove a lot of demand, but the novelty of that format didn't, didn't last for a long time. So we were, you know, expanding into other things and doing video and doing interactive work and stuff like that. So what I'm hearing is you're kind of always innovating and staying on the, on the front edge of what's new and or creating it yourself if there's nothing there already. So that you, you constantly testing the market and then putting things out there. So people are copying you rather than getting ahead of you. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. I mean, it's, it definitely moves quickly. And um, I think there's a balance between trying to ride that wave of novelty or stay out in front. Um, I think that's a bit of a trap because you, you just end up sort of chasing the latest trends just for that sake, whatever the new platform is or whatever. Um, but there is a validity to those things. That's where people are. That's where people are engaged. And so trying to balance that with what sort of has staying power in terms of actually providing value in the content and in the, in the marketing efforts themselves. Yeah. And there always seems to be a new platform popping up every six months or so at least right now. Right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. okay. So now the company is kind of established. You, you've done this blog or you've worked with Mint and then it's, broken you into these like fortune 100 companies um what next for the company how did you then grow that business up to a multiple uh, seven figure income that it's generating right now mm -hmm. i mean it was um the first three years were just just kind of growing and trying to keep the wheels on so you know everything was um none of our systems scaled or anything like that, but we were hiring a lot and we got up to, up to maybe 35 or 40 people. Um, and, and we were just kind of doing more and more and more. And that's this when we in-house at the time it was all in one office location back then. Or was it uh, for the most part? Yeah. 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 There were a few remote people here and there, and we've always worked with a pretty extensive network of freelancers that are kind of, you know, an extension of our team, but, um, yeah, when that, that 35 people is like in house in our office in California and, um, 
but we were still managing projects out of, you know, Google spreadsheets and, um, and didn't have any sort of centralized systems. And so there was sort of a, a moment about three years in where we kind of had to reset and start to build um, some infrastructure in to be able to scale beyond that point. Um, just because it felt like everything was starting to break at the size we were at. The, the management systems were the, the project management systems and financial you know, sophistication and all of those things were um, needing some attention. We needed more official HR type of stuff. And um, just the teeth and pains to get to the next level, right? Where you now go from kind of all hands on deck startup to, okay, we're a real business now. We need to establish some systems and processes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a tough, it's tough to balance that because you want to, or my inclination was to, you know, to build in a lot of structure into things and processes and things like that. And some of that served us really well um, in being able to scale, but um, you know, other parts you tend to over-engineer and that can slow you down um, as well. So trying to figure out how to do just the minimum you need um, and not try to build for some. How did you find that balance? Because I'm, I, I'm guilty of exactly that same thing, so I'm sure many others are too. So what worked for you guys in terms of finding the balance of not over-engineering it, but having enough structure in place? Well, I'm sure we've fell on our face a few times <laughs> doing that. We all um, did. <laughs> yeah. But um, I think it's more that I look back on that now and I try to use that to guide some of my decision-making because I think there's always that tendency to um, design a solution for every scenario rather than just like the one that you're in. And, um, I think that there are some things that served us really well in kind of standardizing our, the processes around the work and the way that people work together that enabled us to onboard people really quickly, get them up to speed, have really well-defined roles and things like that. Um, that I think we got largely right. Um, I think there are other things with, um, our systems like CRM and, and project management that we probably over-engineered from the, from the start. Um, and, and then you're kind of playing with that balance over the years to try to, to write that. Um, and then there's like the stuff with management. That was the stage where we started to promote managers. Not everyone reported into one of the three of us. Um, we needed some other layer um, to be able to scale beyond that. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, uh, those are difficult waters to, to navigate because you're looking at promoting people who are peers, um, you know, now managing someone else and um, people that are new managers learning to, uh, learning to do that well. Um, so that's some of those worked out, some, do, some didn't. And, um, you start to get a keener eye over time about how to do that well. Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense. And then when we were talking earlier, you were talking about growing the revenue and how that was one of the, the biggest issues of the company. Can you just share a little bit about that and the tips and tricks, obviously after the Mint blog and then growing that way, but other ways that the business has grown and kind of what you guys focused on in order to really uh, increase that revenue number? Mm-hmm. It's changed over time. I think um, when we were a younger business, 
a lot of our work felt very project-based. It was very uh, transactional. So it was like, you need a blank. We will provide blank for this amount of money, rinse and repeat, you know, as much as possible. And we would get a lot of that demand was driven and the growth was driven through word of mouth through um, we actually had attribution on a lot of our work. So it's say, you know, created by column five. So through some of those outlets that were a little more high profile that drove a lot of demand for us. Um, so it was really, that was kind of the playbook was just more and more of that. Um, it's shifted as we've, as the industry has matured as, and, and we have matured and now it's a lot less transactional. It's a lot more relational. Those single projects are now more, you know, holistic engagements where we're doing more strategic work. Um, we may be in more competitive situations where we're pitching against people. Um, so we've had to really learn to bring in business in a new way. Um, probably more, more like a traditional agency, um, in landing some of those larger deals because it's what it takes to win that is, is fundamentally different than what it takes to win just kind of the small project. So that's been the, uh, we, we've had to reinvest in our own marketing a lot in that. So we, um, you know, developed like a really sound SEO strategy and we have a really strong inbound marketing practice. Um, and then we also, you know, have really like leveled up the way that we pitch new clients and, and grow accounts. So it's getting better every day. It's figuring out what works and what hasn't. But ultimately, I think the main thing that you said there is, is building a relationship rather than just a transaction. So it's kind of, mm -hmm. you're part of the team rather than, oh, we need something. Let's reach out to column five and get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Got it. Okay. So uh, one of the other things that we talked about I thought was really interesting was your approach to kind of distributed work. Um, how did mm -hmm. you go about that? And like, what were the key things that worked really well for you? Mm -hmm. We'd experimented with it early on as we had, we had freelancers all over the country and sometimes all over the world. So we were pretty accustomed to working that way. And, and most of our clients honestly were not local because we were in Southern California, a lot of, it was a lot of various startups. It was a lot of um, people in New York. Um, so we didn't really have in-person relationships with a lot of our clients as well. So we were very accustomed to just kind of working over email and chat and phone calls. Um, as we brought in some of those freelancers and hired them, um, we, we skinned our knees a little bit on that because we had, um, there was a difference between working with someone for a long time in some capacity where you knew the relationship and you had a good one and then you just transition them to an employee. When we started hiring met new employees completely remote, we didn't have a great like remote onboarding practice or anything like that. So that was a lot harder for people to sort of um, assimilate into our culture. And how did you um, fix that? We stopped doing it uh, for a long time. <laughs> um, so we sort of just, reversed that and went um, completely in-house. And then a few years ago, we started having more and more people want to, to move, you know, away from our main offices. And so we just treated that kind of case by case. Um, people moving to the Pacific Northwest or to, um, you know, Idaho or Nevada um, and even Central California. And so we started supporting that case by case and getting a little more accustomed to that. And we've always had a pretty flexible like work from home policy. 
so we started to get the tools in place to be able to do that more effectively. Um, I would say that, and then also with the New York uh, presence as well, we had to learn, you know, how to collaborate across time zones and stuff like that. Um, and then now, you know, in the age of COVID, uh, that's been sort of thrust upon everyone. So I think that's that's been our call to really like level that up and make sure that our experience there is uh, is a really strong one and something that I'm particularly passionate about around that is I think that um, certainly in-person collaboration in it can't really be replicated in the in the virtual space I totally agree um, but that said I don't think that the majority of work is in-person collaboration or, or is even collaboration yeah maybe I think just a that, pitch or kind of the final piece of the puzzle or just the sensitive parts rather than all of it yeah, yeah, there's some critical times when people need to come together and get aligned. And I think that we can do a pretty good job of replicating that virtually. Um, but I think that a lot of great work um, doesn't come from this like romantic idea of everyone in a room with beanbag chairs and pointing at a whiteboard and, you know, this sort of multimedia experience. I think a lot of good work comes from thinking about something really deeply and working on it. Um, solo and then taking it to your peers and improving upon that idea, like kind of sharpening it. Um, so I think that's a unique advantage to embracing distributed work is giving people the space to do that really deep work and to really gather their thoughts and communicate something fully rather than sort of leaning on the crutch of we're all just kind of spitballing ideas here. And sometimes it never really comes together. The, uh, the other piece of that that I think is really important is I think there's a lot of opportunity for better work-life balance with the work from home. There's also some challenges to it, to be sure, with, you know, childcare. That's actually leading into my next question in terms of how are you maximizing the utilization of your team now that they're working remotely and, and how much work and the work velocity that each person has? How do you kind of figure that out and balance and spread it accordingly? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's sort of the the job of our managers to have their finger on the pulse of how, how we're staffing projects and how, how people are um, feeling uh, about their work and how much they have going on. Individuals certainly have some, uh, some targets that they're accountable to in terms of how they're using their time. But, you know, that's, that's never something that we're able to manage by just standing over someone's shoulder. Yeah. Um, that's something that's on, that's on people to be able to um, use their time well. And we don't know how every minute is spent and um, nor, nor should we. Um, but the people that are productive and getting results will become very apparent over time and people that are not, um, that will also become apparent. So, um, you know, the goal is to have good and humane management practices to be able to assess performance as objectively as possible. And um, I think that distributed work makes us, forces us to level that up and not rely on the sort of bad proxy of, you know, just walking around and seeing if people are sitting in their chairs. Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So just to, uh, to wrap up here, Ross, I ask this question to everyone at the end and it's, if you had to attribute your success between these three factors, 
how would you apportion it over drive, skill, and luck? Mm, I think that, uh, I think luck plays probably the largest <laughs> factor in that. Um, but it's the combination of those, obviously, in that being prepared and ready when you're, we, we certainly had that, you know, right place at the right time moment. Um, but then drive is where, or that's where drive comes in is like being able to step on the gas and say, this is an opportunity and I'm willing to dig in and work hard for it. Um, we certainly worked very hard in those early years to, to get things going. Um, and then I think, you know, on the, on the, uh, skill part of it, um, execution is certainly, certainly a piece of it in that I think a lot of people have ideas of, um, what they could do. And that only goes so far, like being able to actually, um, put in the work and, and execute on the opportunity is, um, is a big piece of it. So I think rather than what's the most, uh, which one would I credit the most for success? I think it's more of a sequence um, of uh, how those things play out and being able to execute on each one of them at, at each stage. Awesome. That's very interesting. So thank you so much for, for sharing with us, Ross, and taking the time. We'll put the links to, uh, to column five and to get in touch with you directly below. For anyone who's interested in that, thanks so much. Thanks, Casey.